What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation, and today I'll be speaking with Ray Deliri, Executive Director of Atlosa Family Healing Services. Ray's been a voice of change in London and a fierce advocate for our city's Indigenous population for a number of years, and I'm so excited for this opportunity opportunity to chat with him today. Hi, Ray. How are you? I'm doing really well this morning. Thank you. Good. I'm so happy to have you here on our podcast. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with you, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to work at at LOSA? Minoa Kitikanzibing Nishnabea King in Dujiba. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ray Deliri. I live on Chippewas of the Thames First Nation just outside of London, Ontario. I am a Ojibwe and Algonquin Anishinaabe original person from this part of the world. And I have been with Atlosa Family Healing Services as the executive director now for five and a half years. Prior to this, I had done quite a bit of different things in the community or within the region here and even uh, nationally. And all of it has been centered on the uh, development and the movement towards self-determination for First Nation peoples, particularly uh, with my people, the Anishinaabe people. Uh, So my work with Atlosa, actually, I began as a board member with Atlosa as a community volunteer. And at the time I was running my own uh, consulting business and doing indigenous relations work for a number of different clients. And so I had some spare time and uh, was asked to come to the Alosa board to help out a bit. And I, I wanted to, Alosa had always been near and dear to my heart. It was one of the very first places that I had found employment after graduating college so uh, that led me to the board. And after some time on the board, um, eventually I had ended up uh, resigning and applying to the executive director role. Amazing. And um, so, Ray, we are very familiar with you at Lennon Community Foundation, but I'm sure a lot of others maybe aren't familiar with the work that you do at Atlosa. So could you share more about what Atlosa Family Healing Services does for the community? Sure. The best way I like to explain this is that Atlosa Family Healing Services provides opportunities for community members in the Indigenous community to, to access healing supports and ultimately to have an opportunity to overcome trauma and an opportunity for healing uh, from intergenerational trauma that has been brought on by colonization. And so that work takes form in many different ways. And at the very beginning of the organization, at, the, at its very uh, early, early beginnings in 1986, it was a grassroots community-led initiative to create something, some type of organization that would speak to and create awareness of the violence 
that was very prevalent in our communities and uh, where where people were being harmed in um, in many different ways. And it was actually a group of women from our communities who stood up and said, "Enough is enough. We need to do something about uh, this this issue of violence in our communities." And you know, when we're dealing with violence, we know that there are uh, abusers and then there are also victims or survivors. And so their efforts were not um, were not targeted just on the victims and survivors. They also wanted to address the uh, the abusers and they wanted to do that by creating awareness of the cycle of violence. So one of the first things I guess that LOSA was, was a, a resource center for understanding the cycle of violence and how that was so, and why it was so prevalent in our communities. And um, also some counseling opportunities for people who had been experiencing violence. And that uh, had grown into um, further opportunity funded by the province to, to open up an emergency women's shelter for women and children who are escaping violence. At the time, however, the, the founders, the originators of Atlosa, they didn't just want a, a place to shelter uh, victims or survivors of violence. They wanted a place where people had the opportunity to heal and ultimately to like really work with, with uh, themselves at a very deep level and with their families at a deep level to hopefully be able to overcome um, the root causes of violence. And, and that is our way, that, that is our way of uh, working with trauma that's how we understand to 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 achieve overcoming it is to dig deep into the roots and, and overcome it that way by addressing it very good um and i know with that um you do a lot around housing as well and um, i know lcf made a grant through our community vitality grant program in support of uh, an education and training on how to adapt housing for service service models to Indigenous principles. Um, can you share a little bit more how that fits into your mandate? Yeah, certainly. You know, one of the, one of the social phenomenon that occurs is that uh, one, one social issue or what we might consider a social issue that happens within society sort of perpetuates another. And, and there can be this very vicious cycle that develops and perpetuates itself because the, the so-called social issues or the social determinants of health are, are not all being met all at once. So uh, the case in point would be where a woman, and her ch- a woman and her children need to escape a dangerous or violent situation. They leave their home. Now they become homeless. They become um, unsafe in their own community or in their own area and maybe not uh, have the opportunity to return to the home. So this this uh, this sheltering of of uh, victims and survivors actually by perpetuated homelessness. And so we we began in about 2010 with a realignment of our mandate, and or in addition to it, to address the homelessness issue within the the urban community here in London, but also within the region. Um, because in sheltering women and children, we were sort of perpetuating. This, this homelessness issue. Uh, we did not have at the time opportunities beyond a shelter stay, which is only 42 days uh, for women and children to find secure, safe housing. So we, we ventured into homelessness services then. Uh, today, we do have some supportive housing units that we operate. And then like you mentioned, we have a number of different homelessness support services. One of them being a systems change approach because we realized that even 
even with being able to offer some great services and some great programs, uh, that is only only at a very basic needs level. And in fact, uh, one of the root causes that perpetuates homelessness and other social issues in our society is is the system itself in which we operate in. And we know that in, in this city and in this region, uh, racism is very much so a part of that system. And so we took, we took it upon ourselves with uh, partners and, and the support of LCF to be able to create awareness within the system to affect change and to also provide training for individuals who are working within the social system and, and systems that are related to this um, to understand what it is that we are dealing with, why it is that we're dealing with it, and, and to point out the very issues that exist within the system that need changing. And hopefully the, the, an initiative like this would then cause um, an opportunity for change to occur. Very nice. And I want to dig deeper with this um, now that you kind of opened it up a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the land we're on and the Indigenous communities that have traditionally inhabited it? Yeah, I can do my best. And, uh, you know, when I say that I can do my best, what we, I think what we all should always appreciate is that our, our human minds can only, can only sort of go back so far. They can only expand themselves so far um, based on memory. And then when we run out of memory, then we rely on what other people have told us or we rely on um, some type of record or proof of what that is. So we know that there are professionals who like to dig into the ground and find proof of what might have existed here prior to us. But even that can only go so far because things return back to the earth and, and that's sort of the cycle of life. So there are some things that we just don't know. We, we in fact don't know um, beyond, you know, 15,000, 25,000 years ago, who with certainty was here. But what we do know for sure is that this part of the world was for the red color of people, the indigenous people. And that's what we call ourselves. And, and we we refer to ourselves in our different languages as the original people, because this is where we come from. In our understanding of the creation of humankind and the development of humankind, we, we are made out of the very earth that exists in this quadrant of the world. And so that that's one thing to consider. Beyond that, what we know about this area is that it's like very bountiful. It's like right in the heart of the Great Lakes. And so it, it's, it's really safe to assume that there have always been people here because it's such a bountiful place. There's so many, um, there's so much opportunity for food and for growing and for hunting and gathering that exists here that it, it just, you know, we were, we were intelligent people. It would not make sense for us to not be here. Uh, but that being said, what, what we do understand about our more recent history is that this area was very much a shared area because of its bountifulness. And what we refer to this area now is the dish with one spoon. And the dish with one spoon territory means that this entire area is like a big bowl and you know, it, of food, of sustenance. And we're all going to share from this one big dish. So the people that um, have historically made their, this place their home in the more recent history are the Anishinaabe, the Ugwe or Haudenosaunee people, people of the Longhouse. 
and the Lenape people. And uh, amongst those those great nations, those great confederacies, there are some sub-tribes. And uh, for the Anishinaabe, that would be the Ojibwe, the Bodewatomi, and the Odawa, who have uh, historically inhabited this part of the world. For the Haudenosaunee, the Ongwe Hongwe, um, the, the actual confederacy came in a little bit later in time, but prior to, to them being here, there were other Iroquois-speaking people uh, namely the uh, the Huron, the the what's known as the Tobacco people, or the Adirondack, and the Piton, and and we know that the people existed here, but prior to that, there could have been others, and so it's not uh, it's not for us to necessarily say who it was or who it wasn't. What we do know is that we have ancestry here, and that we shared this place. The um, the most interesting thing about this particular part of the world is that it seems like it's always been shared that way because of its uh, proximity, because of its geography. One of the things that we sort of steer clear of um, is is ever claiming to own the land because we don't feel like, uh, it's not even we don't feel like it. We're just unable to own own the land because in our languages, there's, there's not a way to, to own the earth or own the land or own the things that are, within the earth we're we're in relationship to all of creation that includes the earth and the waterways and the minerals and the rocks and everything that uh, exists on this place uh, we believe has a spirit and that spirit is similar to ours and we are connected to that spirit and in relationship to that spirit so for instance when we refer to the earth or to land we refer to her because she is a feminine spirit as being our mother, our very first mother, the very the very substances that make up our human being, our body, our vessel, come from her. The same minerals, the same the same waters, the same contents, and so she's our first mother that way. And and we can't own our mother. We don't own her. We're in relationship to her. We cannot exploit her. We cannot sell her. We cannot rape and pillage her. We we are in a good relationship with her. We treat her that way. So it would be completely, and it is completely contradictory for us to be able to say, we own this piece of land and they own this piece of land and so on and so forth. That language just doesn't exist in our vocabulary. I find this so interesting, um, and I'm learning so much because I've talked to you before. Um, so you talked about how this nation is a nation of great abundance, um, and so and and even how your people look at um, our system as you know the Mother Earth, right? That this is your the spirit. Now, how do you think? And I've heard you talk about colonization before, and I want you to share your thoughts around that, how the symptoms of colonization, how have they changed this for your people? And uh, and what are the symptoms of colonization for Indigenous people? Right. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, you know, there's so much to this answer, and I want to ensure that I'm providing it with some... Um, some direct like clarity and some succinct, some succinctness. Um, 
One of the most curious things about colonization, I find, is that there is such a contrast between our worldviews and our understanding of the world. I say that, but I also understand, um, I have an understanding, or I feel like I have an understanding of why. Uh, one of the characteristics of the other nations, the other peoples that exist within the world um, are very different from ours. And it's something that I've understood since a child because it's a part of our part of our stories growing up. Um, and that is, that is our understanding that there were uh, four colors of, of human created. And uh, each one of them had their own characteristics. And this is talked about in like in such a way that is uh, like a story, I guess it unfolds as a story. Our people, like the red color of people, were, were so attached to the spirit, the, the natural world that created us, that, that we did not want to leave the place of our origin. The other colors of the world left kind of immediately. And um, the other, like in, in a sequential order, some of them left very quickly because they were so eager to see what was theirs for the taking, theirs for the, you know, what was up for grabs out there amongst all of creation. And, and that sort of helps me to understand this, this contrast in worldviews, that being that, you know, while everything else in other parts of the world were taking place throughout human history, um, that wasn't that wasn't happening here in the same way while empires in other parts of the world were looking to overtake each other and to rule territories and to gain more control and to control the economy and to control trade and to exploit labor resources minerals whatever was deemed as having value based on what people's wants were. That was happening everywhere else in the world. But here, we were, we were very much so like a society that was just based on what was needed to fulfill our basic needs. And, and we, were, we had an understanding of how to coexist with the rest of creation where we could coexist forever without having to, without exploiting and without consuming all that was in front of us. And it just, it, it seems so, um, for me, it's just like so, uh, like I said before, like it's like curious. I just, I, I think about this often, how in, you know, North America, South America, we were very much just like sort of living um, um, with creation. And it, and it's not to say that it was like this utopia, always peaceful. There was never um, any sort of violence eruption or, or disagreements. It's just to say that we had this understanding of living with the world to ensure that we could live forever, like our, our civilizations could live forever. But meanwhile, in the other parts of the world, they were worried about conquering each other, uh, gaining more control and power and possession fulfilling their their most you know uh, their desires greed really overtook a lot of what took place in other parts of the world and power and control 
And so uh, the result of that in those other parts of the world was, as we know, there was quite a bit of warfare, there was violence, there was these great cities and civilizations built, but they had consumed to the point where they were no longer sustainable. And they, it, so what they would do, they would look to where, where can we go and, and exploit next? Where can we go and harvest the resources from a place that's been untouched? And that's exactly what took place when the first ships arrived here. So when you ask me, what are the impacts of colonization? I think about, well, when those, when those very first ships arrived with the people who had set out for the specific purpose of finding a place to exploit, that what they brought with them was what ended up becoming the symptoms of colonization. Those ships brought with them disease, greed, power and control. They brought with them homelessness, abuse, sexual exploitation, um, you name it, that, all of those things, that because that was the objective of sailing across the ocean and looking for a place with gold and riches. We understand and we know from our stories that even prior to those first ships coming over, the explorers, those people that were sent out by their kings to go and find new lands to, to grab hold of, uh, we had trade relationships with other people from other parts of the world that were a little bit more um, you know, akin to our value system, like the Vikings, who would, who would trade with our people who were on the East Coast or people from the West Coast who traded with other indigenous people from the different islands. So the impact of colonization was a clash of, of two worldviews. And uh, we accepted because it's our nature to accept people with diversity as our as our brothers we're a human race we are the same as far as that goes and so we opened and opened our doors and we welcomed them i always point out that we had a, our people had a had a choice to make uh, when i speak about our people i'm even referring to the people the arawak and the caribbean indigenous people who were there and were the first ones to greet Columbus and his ships. They had a choice to make of whether they would sink those ships while they were sitting out there in the water or allow them to come to shore and make peace with them. And the same goes all up the coastline as those ships continued to sail in. We always had a choice to make. The ships could have been sunk, but we chose not to. We extended our hand with brotherhood, sisterhood. And, and it's because we had a belief in humankind we 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 had a respect for humankind and we thought that there couldn't be you know it was just two completely different worldviews had we known that the the result of what this would of what would unfold had been would have been detrimental to our livelihood maybe then we wouldn't have been so friendly but uh, because of our faith and belief in humankind we we accepted and and brought in those first settlers and taught them how to live in this land. And as they sent reports back to their dominions, to their kings and queens, um, they were given further instructions to, to begin setting up colony, to, to grab as many furs as they can, to grab as much lumber as they can, to start digging in the ground for gold and minerals. 
And in our under, our understanding, our worldview, that was just so um, conflicting. It was just so different and apart from what we understood. So there is there's also like this um, trauma that's experienced even in in the in the changing mindset. And when we would show resistance to that, the immediate response was violence and warfare and power and control. And what is, what is most um, upsetting about that, I think, is that it was the highest, you know, for that civilization to come here, it was their highest faith and religious entity that provided them with the with the sanctioning to undertake what they did, the papables, Terranolius, right from the Pope, to say that where there exists people who, you know, who are indigenous or not of this faith, then they are not considered human and you have the right by the grace of God to be able to do what you need to do to sustain your livelihood. And, and that's upsetting. That that leaves a you know it, it leaves a film in the mouth that that doesn't taste so great when we think about uh, what these great um, teachings of life in the Bible and in other religions you know their true meaning what they, what for what they really are it's beautiful but when the people who who exercise that or use that to to their advantage to take control of others uh, then it uh, it's not so nice at all. So there, there are so many layers of trauma inflicted by colonialism. It's, it's, uh, it's so profound because it goes so deep into our communities. When we look at the present day issues today of, of homelessness, of poverty, of substance abuse, mental health and addictions, the state of our communities on reserve, the state of our communities who live in the urban centers, even though it's how many years, hundreds of years later, centuries later, the, the effects of that initial action still exist. And the reason that they do is because they, they actually they still exist. We're still under colonial rule. We are still the race of people who are considered to be less than other people and treated as though we need to be controlled. Like we need to be advised, like we don't know enough for ourselves what is right versus wrong. And we are also not respected for having, for having our own um, systems of governance and, and leadership. Um, we are not thought of that way. And the proof of that is that within your Canadian constitution and the laws that exist to enact that constitution and the regulations and the policies and right down to the way that policies are enacted in this city for any social service, they are all constructed on this very racist fundamental document that we call the Canadian constitution, which ignores completely the fact that constitutions, whether they were written or not, existed here prior to Canada's. There's there's just a little bit of uh, what I have to say about that. No, this is very interesting and very deep for sure. Um, and you're right. There have been 
generations and generations of uh, of this systemic stuff that's been happening um, to Indigenous people over the years. And colonization has created, you know, the, the capital markets and the capital system, right? And um, so I'm curious to know about your opinion, you know, how does decolonization look like and how do these capitalistic systems make it harder for decolonization to happen? Right. So I, I think I've, I've heard and I've, I've read a little bit, but I've mostly heard from, from others, including my, my wife, that decolonization, that terminology, maybe it's not even the best terminology. Uh, we are only... We are only stripping away a little bit of the colonization as we decolonize. <laughs> there's got to be some well, this better, is, we right? Need to hear right? This. Like, there's got to be some better terminology for this, and I don't know what that is um, because I like the the complete vocabulary vocabulary of the English language. Um, I don't have the full grasp of it, but there's got. I know that there's there must be a better term for this that we should strive for, rather than, rather than to decolonize because decolonize is such like a we're still focusing on the colonization aspect of it. And all we're talking about doing is stripping away little bits at a time to, to not be so colonized. Meanwhile, here we are as colonized as ever, including myself. Uh-huh. Okay. This is good. So I don't, I don't know what that terminology is, but I would say that um, we should be asking ourselves, what are we striving for? What are we trying to build and achieve here? What is the ultimate goal? And that that takes quite a bit of discussion, but it, it 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 takes discussion that is level, that is on a level playing field. And when I say that, what I mean is that First Nation, the original people of this land, we have we have institutions that exist, we have leaders that exist that aren't necessarily always just. Uh, the First Nation Bank Council leaderships and the organizations that support those councils. Um, and I say that uh, with all due respect to the, to those councils, and I've sat on one in the past. Um, those people are leaders, the First Nation councils that exist in each of their communities, they are leaders. But there also exists other forms of leadership, other forms of governance. And we, we really just have to like be able to speak about these things with some level of understanding um, in knowing that First Nations councils and government, governments that exist, the way that we understand it today are, are also just outcomes of colonization. It's a, it's a system that was imposed upon in every First Nation community uh, that there needs to be a chief and there needs to be councillors that support that chief. Well, that's a foreign system insofar as it wasn't our creation. There existed in all of our communities uh, natural institutional governing systems that predated colonization. Part of our work needs to be able to to reestablish some of those governing entities that existed. And maybe now it would look a little bit different because we're, we recognize that we're in a different time and, and perhaps there can be some type of hybrid. Uh, that work exists within First Nations communities themselves. The work on the Canadian side of the coin is that Canadians and, and their, their institutions, Canadian governments need to recognize and respect the natural leaders, the hereditary leaders or the clan leaders, however it is that they are, are organized in each of their nations, they need to be respected just as equally. 
and their voice matters just as importantly as as do the First Nation councils. But in in this effort towards achieving something different than what we are currently in, at its most basic in its most basic form, the relationship between settlers and First Nations people should be that of like brother and sister or brother and brother or sister and sister because that was our understanding of the relationship. And just like in your own home growing up, uh, do you have siblings? Yes, I do. I have uh, just one older sister. Okay. And we're very close. Did you have separate bedrooms? We did, but my sister and I slept together the whole time. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> and we're six years apart. Yeah. Okay, but go on. I want to hear. Well, in those bedrooms, though, you had some autonomy. Correct. Yes. Your sister couldn't walk into your bedroom and just choose to paint your walls whatever no. color she chose to. No. Because you guys were close, but nonetheless, you had your space, she had hers. Right. Rules existed in your bedroom. Rules existed in her bedroom. Yours were your rules. Hers were hers. And the understanding, the sisterhood there, the reason you're able to be so close probably and to get along is because you respected those rules, those boundaries. Right. There were some things that you just could not take for granted. But there were some things that you knew you could do together, you could work with together, things that you enjoyed doing together, playing together, whatever it was right. that didn't even need to be spoken about. This is how we it coexist together. Nonetheless, there, there are still like rules and boundaries that existed. And like I said, you can walk into her room and decide that you're going to reorganize and, you know, reorganize her closet or tell her this is the way that you should be folding your clothes. Let's do it this way. This is where you should be putting all of these things. Let's organize it like this. And I'm going to create some rules for your room. I know it's not my room, but I'm a little bit smarter than you, I think. I'm going to take that for granted. I'm, I'm just going to come in unilaterally and claim that power. And I'm going to create some rules for your bedroom that I think you should follow. It's going to be for your best interest. You, you'll, you'll like me in the end for this. Ultimately, what's your sister's name? Sally. And her Portuguese name is La Salette. Okay. So ultimately, La Salette, you would say, La Salette, I think you should become more like me. So as a matter of fact, we're just going to, you see how my room looks? We're going to make your room to look exactly like my bedroom. Exactly the same. Everything that I do, you should do because you should become more like me. I'm better. That that is what ended up happening in the relationship between us and, and the settlers. The, there was this assumed power and control of the settlers, this assumed hierarchy that existed, and we needed to become more like them. They came right into our house. We, we, you know, when you invite somebody into your house for dinner, even if they're unannounced, they come, somebody comes knocking on your door, you invite them in, your family's eating, it would be disrespectful to, to just have that visitor watch you guys eat. So you make a place for them at the table, you give them some water, whatever it is, some bread, and you eat together. Because otherwise, they would be disrespectful. They would just be, um, it wouldn't be so courteous. The, uh, the visitor 
when they come to the dinner table, you don't expect the visitor to, to reorganize the way the table is set or to situate people around the table and said, well, I really like how we're sitting here, guys. I think, uh, Diane, you should go sit over there and uh, your, your folks should come and sit over on this side of the table. They're not going to come in and impose rules. You wouldn't expect that of a visitor. Um, but that's also what took place here. And, and so that, that's how we think about what happened here. Settlers walked into our house and they started rearranging the rules because they thought they knew better. This was after we had a, a, you know, initially welcomed them with, with brotherhood and sisterhood. We would have, our, our understanding of the treaty relationships and, and all of the agreements that took place throughout all of that history between contact and uh, settling within the colonies and the fur trade and then, um, you know, the like industrialization area, industry area of our era that... Um, we would have never expected that it would have unfolded that way. The treaty relationship was really about, you know what? We don't own this earth. So going back to what I said at the beginning, we don't own this earth. It's not up to us to say whether or not you can exist here. Our understanding is that the earth was, was created for us to coexist on. And you happen to show up at our shores. Well, you're here. There must be a reason for this. So come on in and eat with us. Come into our home and and coexist with us as brother and sisters on this land that's the way that we live um you know but the, you know they they came in and they completely abolished the relationship that we had thought existed and they no longer treated us like brothers and sisters they began treating us like their children and even worse than that we were actually treated like the slaves and were enslaved so that um, to the extent that we still exist that way today. And when we talk about decolonizing or maybe achieving that something greater good, the, the first step is to really look back at what that it, intent of the relationship was to be. How was it that we first related with each other? And can, can settlers not be thankful that we didn't sink the ships in the first place? And can we not then have some respect for the way that we had existed here and an attempt to move towards living in coexistence, which was peace and friendship from the beginning? There are, there, the way we understand it is there are two canoes, two rivers, two paths, um, and the, the Haudenosaunee created a wonderful illustration of this in the form of a wampum built called the Turo Wampum or the Gaswenta. That relationship that exists is two parallel lines, paths, rivers, canoes that can coexist each other without interfering with the other. That is, that is the answer towards decolonizing. Mm-hmm. You did a beautiful job of illustrating this in a very simple way for people to actually understand that feeling, the feeling that generations have have felt, right, with uh, the lack of respect, totally, in uh, coming to your homes and, and taking over. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts about how 
did philanthropy contribute to any of these systems? Or and where is the opportunity for philanthropy? Or have you seen philanthropy change in trying to change these systems? Yeah, this is a really good question also. What I understand about philanthropy is that there are people in the world who who are still very much so in touch with their their humanness. They they have a uh, a big heart and they want to do something uh, because they are fortunate to be able to help others. So that's how I understand it. I think what is what is almost difficult about this is that philanthropists, obviously in this country, anyhow. Uh, if this is where they had sort of, you know, built their their riches or um, built their wealth, likely has been on the development of of land and resources in some form or another, and and certainly like on, it's an outcome of colonization. Again, it's this pursuit for for wealth and for gaining as much as you can, and so in the development of that, I think it's it's probably difficult to see where uh, people just in general who have who have gained um, enough wealth where they have enough to be able to share with others have probably done so like on the heels of colonization period and maybe that's what motivates them to give maybe that's what motivates them to to reach back to people who who could use some support and some help i don't necessarily think that uh or believe that philanthropists are like the cause of, you know, some kind of negative social outcome or, or even just like perpetuate it. That's not necessarily what it is. Again, what we exist within is this racist system. So people in society are sold on this dream that you can, that you are going to have a fulfill, fulfilling life by, by earning as much as you can, attaining wealth, having a happy retirement and being able to relax at some age and just do whatever you want, travel the world, whatever, enjoy your grandkids, whatever it is. And you can do so if you attain enough wealth in your working life to be able to do that and provide for that. And then you can set up your children, grandchildren, and so on and so forth. So we're sold on on this idea that that is happiness. That is the ultimate fulfillment of life is to acquire all of these shiny, bright objects and it may be that that's maybe that's the case maybe that's just human nature in itself but there's an expense to that there's a cost to that and the cost is very clear at least in our eyes that that has been at the expense of our livelihoods at our population our population is only now 2 or 3%, maybe almost 4% of the overall Canadian population. We become the minority when we were clearly the majority when settlers first arrived here. And so one of the biggest hits we have suffered from is that our population just decreased dramatically because of disease, warfare, uh, because we are exposed to, to new things that we had never been exposed to before. And it was just to our demise. Smallpox is an example of that. Uh, other diseases, tuberculosis, that was all brought here, foreign to us. Um, and, and it's all linked in because throughout the stages of colonization, 
throughout the fur trade era, the uh, land jobbing era, the creation of agricultural spaces, and then you know the the uh, exploration of mines and minerals and resources, timber, all of that is like central to the economy of Canada, the natural resources. That's what we are known for, right? And then there are there are secondary, tertiary, and so on levels of economies that are created as a result of that activity. This is where, this is like the real guts of the Canadian economy. That's what Canada's like global position is. And so people who are, um, you know, creating wealth are doing that again on racist laws and policies that perpetuate that type of activity. And it wasn't in our original agreements to do this. So it is kind of a, um, a weird relationship where you have people with good hearts, uh, not necessarily maybe thinking or even knowing and understanding that, hey, I'm a part of this bigger system here that just perpetuates the, the demise of indigenous people overall. They're, they're growing up in a system that, that is just built already. And they are brought into this idea of, of attaining wealth and sustaining wealth because that is, that's the dream. That's the Canadian dream, I guess, just like the American dream was or is. So there are, there are probably motivators within that. People who do understand that, they want to do something about it. Well, then I'll give back. And that giving back, yes, it helps. It helps the people in the moment who are in most need, but it does not address the issue, the fundamental issues that exist that perpetuate those social issues. And it, it only provides typically band-aids. Until we address the fundamental root causes, which exists at a very high level, at a constitutional level within this country, change will likely not happen unless we achieve that. I kind of see it, I kind of I see, you know, the future of our society as being, we are going to continue down the path we are, which is continue to um, explore and exploit the natural resources of our, of our country, of our world. And we're going to consume to an extent and populate to an extent that will just be our own demise. And the world will have had enough with us and decide that she needs to do something different and start over. We will not exist. Or, or we make decisions right now for, for the future, not for us, because we're not going to see a major change like in my lifetime, but for the future generations, for maybe like my great, 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 great grandchildren maybe they'll have an opportunity to exist in an environment where they can sustain themselves if we begin to make decisions today that actually change the course of our future, where we are not so reliant on exploiting our natural resources in the earth and the land, and where we actually move towards understanding how we can coexist in this space together without interfering with one another. So how do you think the truth and reconciliation um, mandate plays into this work. Do you think, do you see progress being made? What are your thoughts? I, I think we're just still at the, the very first step in understanding the truth. I mean, this is sort of the purpose of this podcast also, I believe, is that uh, there needs to be more awareness. And with the recent 
initiative that uh, your folks at LCF have helped to fund with Atlosa. Uh, that that kind of initiative of, of raising awareness and creating an understanding is really just the truth stage. We, we can't even begin to address the 94 recommendations until, again, we're on that level playing field where we, we all appreciate and understand what has actually happened in this country. What we're taught in the history books and in the uh, curriculum that exists from JK right up until people receive their PhDs or doctorate degrees is all one-sided stories. It's his story, not our story of what took place in this country and on this land. And so until we, we tell the truth, essentially, let's do that first. Let's just start telling the truth. Then we can begin addressing those 94 recommendations. And those recommendations, they've got some footing. They're good. But let's not try to jump to doing something without knowing what, where we're coming from. That makes sense. So I would love to know, what are your thoughts on land acknowledgements? If you wouldn't mind sharing. I know <laughs> okay. this is a tough question, but, yeah. um, you know, we, we see this happening a lot. Um, we see, you know, private and public sectors participating in this. And I just want to know, how does that feel? And what are your thoughts on this? Okay, so I actually ask this question every week. Uh, by different folks and people and organizations. And so my answer is fluid. For anybody out there listening who's heard me give an answer before, don't think to yourself, well, that's not what he said last week. Because the answer has to be fluid. And here's, here's why. Maybe for the time being, this issue of land acknowledgements needed to be brought up and raised. And maybe it's a phenomenon right now because it had to be. We had to cling to something that would cause controversy, which it has to some extent. So that there, maybe it's the catalyst for telling the truth. Maybe, maybe just this whole topic of land acknowledgements is just a, a way for us to be able to speak about this and then start uncovering what the truth is. So that sort of just occurred to me right now. That's not what I told somebody yesterday. Yesterday, I told somebody, I don't like them. I don't want to hear land acknowledgements. But today, I'm thinking about it. Like, this keeps coming up. So there's got to be something greater and bigger to this than just yes or no. Land acknowledgements, you know, I suppose they come out of uh, all of these different places. What we are really getting to is, is again, let's... Let's acknowledge that there was an original people here before, before settlers came. Let's just get to that first, very first base and accept that there was a real people here, real people with real societies, with real governance. We were not like these barbaric savages running around the woods naked, not knowing where we were going or coming to next. That's the picture that was painted, right? That we were just, we had no faith, we had no religion, we were pagans, we, we just like were um, savages, we couldn't speak English or Spanish or French or Portuguese, so therefore we were like dumber than the rest of the world. All of these, all of these uh, stigma and characterizations of us were just completely poor and racist. And that 
that perception of us that we were less than something human is what has caused settlers and colonizing governments to feel like they could do what they did because again the papal bulls said if they don't they don't believe in your religion then they're they're nothing they're not human enough to consider if you can't convert them then they're too savage terra nullius if they're not using the land the way that we're using it then it's not theirs doesn't belong to them then so let's get back to square one and just recognize that there were humans that lived here that originated right from this place and rewrite all of the language all of the laws that are built on this language that we were something other than original we were aboriginal we weren't aboriginal that just means that we maybe came here before you guys did but in fact we originated from right here and in indigenous population not necessarily in favor of that word either because it just means that we're we're something other than human why can't we just be called the original humans from here so land acknowledgments i think attempt from from a different place they attempt to try to acknowledge that there were some people here but even in that even in the construct of what a land acknowledgement is it is completely foreign from what we do it is completely foreign from our world view only in so far is that we don't own the land so when we try to acknowledge that this is so and so's territory and so and so's territory then we're actually buying into this notion that there was a people that existed here at some point and they own the land and not us but that's not that's not our world view we share this land it's the land acknowledgments today are trying to replicate what we would do historically which was just to have a respect for the people that were existing in a place that we may not have existed in and where that was important and what the what is un- important to understand about what happened historically is that we were fluid the entire north and south america was just our place to go wherever we wanted and there weren't borders and boundaries but there were people that existed in certain places and they were living there and so it would be respectful of me to approach another nation you know like in um on the west side of the great lakes that's where the dakota and lakota people and nakota people the sioux people had existed it would be respectful for me when i go into that part of the world to acknowledge them to just go and find somebody from that territory let them know that i'm there and in a respectful way to say hey i'm going to pass through or i'm i'm hunting for this or that or i'm doing this and that letting you know that i'm here and i respect all you guys that's just a that again that's just a, a different understanding of what to do when we go into somebody else's like so-called territory but like land acknowledgments today they get situated on who was here first and then who existed here and then where's the archaeological evidence that supports <laughs> those theories 
And so we get asked often as either just community members or staff people at Atlas to say to come and do an opening and then do a land acknowledgement. And I'm like, well, what makes, what's any sense of that? I'm, it's not my function. Why would I come to your function and give a land acknowledgement to land that I grew up on and that all my ancestors are buried in? It, that, that's not how we do it. We might, you know, at our, in our ways, in our ceremonies, in our special events, the way that we do a land acknowledgement is we actually just acknowledge the land itself, our mother. We give thanks to her for the day. We give thanks for everything that she provides for us, all the sustenance, all the animals that she provides for that ultimately like in turn help us, all of those things. That's our way of doing a land acknowledgement. So it's, it's turning into this phenomenon that I'm constantly thinking about and trying to understand. And again, like I said at the beginning, maybe it just needed to be the topic for, the, for this time period so that we can begin to uncover the truth and get to a place of, of truth. My conversation with Ray Deliri had to be cut short as we were running low on time. Don't worry, though. We'll continue the interview with Ray on the next episode of What Lenin Can Be. Stay tuned for part two of this interview coming soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.